Well, we're going to continue wrapping up shortly our study in the book of Mark. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus cursing the fig tree and then going in and completely cleansing the temple. Now, why did he do those things? He cursed the fig tree because it wasn't producing fruit. That was an example to us that we need to be producing fruit in our lives. There's one thing between looking good, another thing between producing fruit. It's easy to walk through life looking like a Christian, talking Christian, but are you producing any fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Any of those things evident in your life? If our lives are all show and nothing really changes within us and we're not producing any spiritual fruit, then we need to find out why that is. God's Word can help us to do that. Jesus cleansed the temple because the act of him cleansing the temple was a direct challenge to the authority of the chief priests at that time. The way they were worshiping God and not allowing others to come. They were gouging those who did come to worship. Everything that was happening there was totally corrupt. And nothing was working the way that God intended it to work at the temple. We ended with verse 17 of chapter 11. It says, he taught them that my scriptures declare my temple will be called a place of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And we said that God has designed the church to operate in a way that's designed to both allow us to worship the Lord, live holy lives, and it's also an instrument to bless others and lead them to Jesus. The reason we exist as a church is to do those things. Worship God, bless the fellowship, and reach others. That's the reason the church exists today. And if we're not doing that, we mentioned last week, why not? What what's, needs to change? So now we continue on. We ended with this verse in verse 18. It says, when the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning on how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so enthusiastic about Jesus' teaching. And that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. So the leaders wanted to kill him. And so him and his guys, they started to leave the town because it wasn't that appointed time yet. So now we come to the next section in verse 20. It says, the next morning as they passed by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed it was withered from the roots. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, look, teacher, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I assure you that you can say to this mountain, may God lift you up and throw you into the sea and your command will be obeyed. All that's required is that you really believe and do not doubt in your heart. Listen to me, you can pray for anything and if you believe, you will have it. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone who you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that you would help us to rightly divide your word of truth, allow it to apply to our lives. The word is meant for us, not for somebody else, but it's meant for us. So Lord, I pray that you would allow it to sink into our hearts this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Now we mentioned earlier that the temple was, this temple account was sandwiched in between the fig tree being cursed and the fig tree dying. Why did, why did they do that? Seems like a parenthetical thing, but it's meant to be a sign of what was coming. So let's look at that for a second. Jesus sees a tree not bearing fruit. He curses the tree, right? 
He sees a temple not bearing the fruit that it was designed to, and he cleanses them out. The cleansing was a precursor or a foreshadowing of what was to happen in Jerusalem. Just as Jesus curses the fig tree and nothing happens right away, and he cleans up the temple, didn't happen right away, nothing happened last, that lasted. On his way back, they see the tree is dead. Going to verse 20. The next morning as he passed by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed it was withered from the roots. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and then exclaimed, look teacher, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So the guy saw the tree and was a precursor of what was gonna happen to Jerusalem and the temple. They bring, it, they bring it to Jesus' attention. They wondered about what's going on. The judgment on the tree is meant to link the cursing and the cleansing. He wanted them to know that as sure as the fig tree died, next day, the temple was going to suffer the same fate. He wanted them to see something that was physical and touchable so they were able to relate to something that was unseen and untouchable as of that moment. He needed them to understand and believe that when he said the temple is going to be destroyed, they need to remember the fig tree was destroyed because it was something they actually saw. If you, if you jump to chapter 13, we see what Jesus says about the temple in verse 1. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at those tremendous buildings. Look at the massive stones in those walls. Jesus replied, those, that magnificent, those magnificent buildings will be so completely demolished that not one stone will be left upon another. He's showing them the fig tree so they understand what happens when you don't bear fruit. It died. So he's telling them, because the temple is the same way as the fig tree, it's going to also die. He's giving them a physical example of what was going to happen in the future. Now, they mentioned the fig tree to Jesus. He saw it, but he doesn't respond to what they said because he changes the subject with the next sentence. Now, I know my Bible does and some other ones do. They separate, this is a separate paragraph. Them mentioning the fig tree is one paragraph. The next paragraph is this next sentence. And in verse 22 it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. Now that's the same sentiment that you find in, in various forms in the Bible. The point of this was to focus on who is the object of your faith. We don't have faith in faith, right? We have faith in the Lord. We don't have faith in God's word. We have faith in God. I mentioned last week, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible points us to whom we are to worship. It's, it's not faith alone that matters. It's in whom do you have faith? The strength of our faith is not what matters. It's in whom? I can have faith all day long that this pulpit is going to move. It's not going to move because there's no, the object of my faith is nothing. When the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about in whom do you have faith? And it's not the strength because in Luke 17, 6 it says, even if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, the Lord answered, you could say to this mulberry tree, May God uproot you and throw you into the sea, and it would obey you. In Mark 9, 24, we talked about this a few weeks ago. After the 
the boy, the father had the boy who was sick. And he says, immediately the, father's, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my, belief, my unbelief. How many have said that in a prayer? I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When people say that you don't have enough faith to receive a healing or an answered prayer, remember that verse. But Jesus says, mustard seed. How much faith do you have to have to be as big as a mustard seed? It's not faith in the healing. It's not faith in the, what's going to happen. It's faith in the God who said it was going to happen. Our faith has to be in the right object. It's not the power of our faith that moves mountains. It's faith in the one who does the moving. And all throughout the Bible, God is always the object of faith. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God. He didn't believe the promise, he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. When we claim God's promise, we're saying that we have faith in the God who made the promise, not that we have faith in the promise itself. If we know that God is a good God and God has promised something, we have faith that God is going to do it. The promise itself is just God saying, I'm gonna do this, but our faith is in the Lord. Our faith isn't in the promise. Mark eleven twenty three 23 says, I assure you, you can say to this mountain, may God lift you up and throw you into the sea and your command will be obeyed. All that's required is that you really believe and do not doubt in your heart. Now the King James says, verily, verily, if you have that version. NIV says, I tell you the truth. Both of those phrases are indicative of what was coming next. In other words, Jesus was saying, listen up. What I'm going to say next is important. That was the kind of a precursor to what he was going to say. Now the mountain is imagery. How many know that? It's figurative in this sentence. The mountain range in the Old Testament was used to indicate difficulties, great difficulties. Zechariah 6, 7 says, Nothing, not even a mighty mountain, will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will flatten out before him. It also, mountains also stand for stability or security. In Psalm 30, verse 7, it says, Your favor, O God, make me as secure as a mountain. A mountain also symbolizes God's power. In Psalm 121, it says, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? May God, my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. In other words, Jesus is saying the greatest possible difficulties in your life Believe that you can overcome them. That's when God works. They can be removed when a person has the faith in the God who says that they can be moved. We prayed this morning, Matthew 6.33, that God knows what you need before you ask. We know that God is faithful. We know that God is true. So we have faith that what God says is going to happen. We believe that God is going to do it. That God has faith. Or God is going to do it. God is trustworthy. Verse 24 says, Therefore, whatever I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you received it, and it, it will be yours. Now, going back to the whole context, Jesus is saying, faith that produces results is not something that you, for lack of a better phrase, gin up. You don't sit there and try to gather a bunch of faith before you pray. You have faith in the God who says it's going to happen. 
whatever you ask for in prayer because you're talking to your Father. Believe that you've received it and it will be yours. We have to receive it from God himself. God gives us the faith to believe that. I like the, the Fire Bible's commentary says this. We cannot take credit for what happens as a result of this faith. Sometimes what we believe for may happen immediately and other times it may not. Yet God gives that faith that our prayers have been heard and that God will respond in his perfect time and way. Now, how many of you have little kids at home, teenagers, and they ask you for something that you tell them no? They can't have it. Anybody do that, parents? Why do you do that? Because you know that whatever they're asking for isn't beneficial for them at that time. Does that mean you don't love them? No. In fact, saying no indicates that you do love them. You're not allowing them to hurt themselves. And your kids, when they get older, now they don't know this when they're teenagers because they think you just don't, don't get it. But when they're 20-something, they understand. One of our daughters bought a little plaque for Anna that says, I understand now, Mom. And that's what happens when you get a little bit older, you become parents yourself. At the time, you don't think it's right, you don't think it's fair. Mom and Dad are just, they're ogres, they can't do anything right. But now they understand it. And that's the way God is. We have faith that God is a good God. And I like what it says here. We know that God has heard our prayers. And we know that God will respond. And we know that God will respond in his perfect time and his perfect way. So the faith that we have is not in so much the answered prayer. We have faith in the God who says, I'm going to do everything perfectly for you. You may not get it at the time, but you have faith that whatever God says in that moment is best for you. And prayer is the source of our power. Prayer is the source of our faith. How many have found that when you don't pray, your faith kind of wanes? And the more you pray, your faith becomes stronger. And your faith grows as you pray. And what happens is when you pray, you leave the results up to God. Verse 25 says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Are your hearts right when you pray? Now, how many have read through the Psalms? Some of those Psalms, I think they're called imprecatory psalms where David said, bring fire down on my enemy, crush my enemy, destroy my enemy. How many know those psalms? How many know we don't pray that today? (laughs) We'd like to pray that today, (laughs) but that's not how we pray. When we pray, our hearts have to be right before God when we pray. And part of that is your heart attitude and forgiveness. When uh, we had our class this morning, it's, we're talking about resentment in our class. And it's easy to build up resentment about situations or people or things. And then what happens is, and I think we used to quote, resentment is you drinking poison and thinking the other guy is going to die. And when you resent, and that builds up, and now your resentment comes out in, what are you going to do about it? 
if you have this resentment inside of you, what's the natural outcome of that resentment? What do you want to do with that? Do you want to get even? Do you want to rain fire down on somebody? Do you want to do something negative? That's the natural outcome of resentment. And as Christians, obviously, we don't want to do any of that. So we have to get rid of the resentment that we might have. And Jesus is saying, you want your prayers to be heard, you need to come with a right heart. And the biggest thing you have to do with your heart is forgive other people. Because it's easy to hold on to that. We talked about you know, holding on to something for years and years and years. And you know, We've done funerals where people come in and say, well, I don't like that person. That, they did that to me 25 years ago. And you're still remembering that? These are things we need to forgive and move on from. And Jesus is saying, before you start praying, you need to make sure your heart's right before God. Now the previous verse emphasized faith, and this verse talks about forgiveness. True faith is demonstrated in how you live, in your actions. We've mentioned before that what you believe will dictate how you live. How many know that? What you believe dictates how you live. If you believe you're not going to get caught speeding on the highway, you're going to speed. If you believe that you need coffee in the morning, you're going to find coffee. It, what you believe dictates how you live. And if you believe in a good God, the natural outcome of that God should be forgiveness. God is righteous. God asked me for, to forgive. So you know what? I'm going to forgive. That's the action that responds to faith. If you believe what God's word says, then you have to act on what God's word says. And that means you have to come in faith and you have to come with a right heart, which means forgiving. Effective prayer always incorporates both forgiveness and faith. Again, the Fire Bible commentary says this, we must, we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can maintain the proper kind of faith that brings answers to prayer if we secretly hold animosity or hatred or bitterness or resentment in our hearts against anyone. In other words, God's not going to listen. Now, how many of you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible? Or NASB, how many have a New American Standard Bible? The reason I ask that is because the next verse, verse 26, only appears in those Bibles. It does not appear in the NIV or the ESV or any of those other Bibles. That's kind of scary, right? Why? Because if you read the notes on most of them, it will tell you that that particular verse does not appear in the, most, the oldest and the best manuscripts we have. So, now, is it anti-biblical? No, because it's repeated in Matthew. Matthew's gospel does have that verse, and most people believe that the people who are writing Mark just added it because Matthew had it. Matthew's account says this. Matthew 6, 14 says, For if you give men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. But since it's not in Mark... We're not going to talk about that verse. We're going to keep going on. Now, I haven't found any explanations of why it wasn't added or why it was added. So we're just going to go to the next verse, which is verse 27. And now we see Jesus facing a direct confrontation. 
Verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? We went to see The Chosen, the first three episodes of The Chosen in the theater the other day. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you. You need to see it. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. But you see, now it begins to take a darker turn. These next, you know, now they're into, into the Holy Week and that kind of stuff. So things are going to get rough. And you see in this version, we saw Jesus really confronting the Pharisees in one of the episodes. But I'm not going to spoil it to you. But it, you can imagine getting in their face. This is what Jesus was doing at this point. And so what they were doing was they were getting in Jesus' face with their questions. Now these leaders had the authority and the obligation to question anybody who claimed to be God or anybody who claimed to be a prophet. That was within their right. Deuteronomy 18 says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? Verse 22, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not be afraid of him. So, They had the right to do it, but they were not doing it with the right heart. They were not doing it to really test what was being said. They were doing it because they were afraid of him. Now, back in the temple, Jesus caused such a ruckus by cleaning it and challenging, you know, getting in the chief priest's face. And then they, now they had the whole Sanhedrin, which is the high court of Jerusalem, all coming and challenging him. Because the the problem was they weren't interested in the truth. They were interested and they wanted to trap Jesus with his answers. They didn't want to find the truth. They wanted him to hopefully say something that would have got him in trouble. And they were ready for it. Now, if we look back a couple of verses, we can find out that this is what their plan was all along. Verse 18. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So now we have the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders, all coming to confront Jesus. And they they were afraid of him, and they wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of what the people were going to do. If we do this, man, the people might just riot and might not be in good ground here. They wanted to trap him in his answers because they wanted his answers to be heard by everybody else so that when they did arrest him, they would have heard the incorrect answer, the wrong answer, and the the crowd would have went, oh, okay, maybe they're right. But uh, of course, we know that Jesus did not answer them that way. Now, before I, now, these guys weren't interested in the truth. They were interested in basically picking a fight. Now, before I was a Christian, I was that guy. How many of you were that guy? You people come to talk to you about the Lord, you just want to pick a fight with them. I would try to put Christians on the spot with questions that are unanswerable. Why is there sickness in the world? Did God create the devil? You know, those type of things. We see all the time in the world, people aren't looking to find truth. They're looking to start an argument and trap people with questions that aren't answerable. They're not looking for truth. They're not looking for a reason to believe. They're looking for a fight, which is exactly what these guys were doing. When they come to you, as Jesus did, we have to discern what the person is actually looking for. Are they asking a true question that they want an answer to, or are they asking a question that they don't want an answer to, they just want to fight? Now, there's two verses in Proverbs that are next to each other. They, 
They seem to contradict each other. Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. But the next verse says, Okay, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Now, it seems like these are the exact opposite, right? Contradictions. Well, which one is it? Well, in reality, they're meant to encourage us to discern what type of question is being asked. Is the person looking for the truth? Are they really looking for an answer? Or are they looking for an argument? If they're looking for an argument, we apply verse 4. Don't answer him. Or you'll be like him yourself. When you realize that he wants to show you up, he wants to make himself out to be smarter than you by getting you to try to answer a question that's really unanswerable, you don't answer him. You let him believe it. However, if the guy is really combative and you have the answer to him that doesn't really make you a, an argument, but you, you're showing him that you do have an answer to that question, then you ver apply verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. We need to discern what their motive is. Does the answer you have help them? Does the answer you have, even though it may not, they may not believe it, but it does answer their question? And you apply it. Paul did this in Acts 19. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. In Acts 17, he does the same thing. As, the cust as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. When we come to church, we should always be motivated by what God's word says. And if that means we are confrontive, it means we're confrontive. We can't back down and, and say things everybody wants to hear just because we want everybody to get along. Always have to speak the truth even if we don't like it or if it's going to hurt someone's feelings. Now the Bible says say it in love, but it does say say it. So Jesus opted for the first one. He doesn't really answer their question. In fact, he turns the tables on them and asks them a question in verse 29. Jesus replied, I asked, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. This question was designed to show everyone the hypocrisy that Jesus was facing in the questions that were being asked of him. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, do you think God was behind John or not? Simple question. But he knew it was a trap for them. Because if they said, well, it was from God, then why did, they, why did they not acknowledge it? And if they acknowledged it, then what Jesus was saying was true because John said it. And if they said, well, John was from God and John told you about me, then you should believe me. So they couldn't say, it was from, they couldn't say that John's mission was from God. But if they say, it's not from God, another problem. Verse 31 says, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say he's from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him? But if we say he's from men, 
No, they feared the people, for everyone that held that John was really a prophet. Jesus didn't refuse to answer their question. He was just in, not endorsing the hypocrisy that was being presented to him. He wasn't being evasive. He was being honest. Sometimes we have to be honest with people and not be evasive. We have situations today that where some want, to, want us to refer to them as something that they are not. And I believe if we're honest about the situation and we should not fall into the trap of agreeing with them with something that we know is not true. If we agree with them and we speak to them as they want us to speak to them, we are in fact agreeing with their assessment of themselves. And we imply that we agree with their thinking. We should be honest with the people we're talking to. Be kind, but be honest. Verse 33 says, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Their answer was basically a refusal to answer. And since they refused to answer, answer truthfully, Jesus didn't answer them. But in reality, Jesus' question was in fact kind of an answer. He was confronting them and exposing their motives by his question. Now in the next chapter, Jesus gets to confront those leaders before they get a chance to get away. And Jesus was ready for their questions. And he uses a parable to, that has clear meaning to those who would hear it. And later as he was torturing them, he did not answer for the same reason we talked about in Proverbs. I'm gonna close with this. As believers, we should be alert and discerning about those around us and be able to talk to them and respond to them appropriately as indicated by the people we're talking to. Do they want a true answer? Do they really want to know about God? Do we have the answer that they want to hear? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if you are asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Can we do that? It doesn't mean you have to be a theologian. It just means when people ask you about your Christian faith, you should be able to simply explain to them what God's done for you. We talked about testimony before. When you're called to give a, a testimony in court, all you're doing is you're telling them what you saw or what you experienced. As a Christian, when people ask you, all you're doing is you're telling them what God has done for you. You don't have to be a theologian or a scholar or anything. You can tell them exactly what God did for you. When they, caught, when they had the blind man who was born blind, and he was, Jesus healed him, and the Pharisees asked him, what do you know about this? He says, look, all I know, I was blind, now I see, period. That's your testimony. This is how I was, this is how I am, this is what God did for me, period. You don't have to explain how it happened, other than the fact that it did happen. They either believe you, if they know you, or they don't believe you. 
And at that point, you can answer any questions they have if they're curious and they're honest about their questions. They may be com combative in their question, but they really want to know what the answer is. And that way you can explain to them. But if you know it's just in for an argument, then back off and not answer them like Jesus did. Are you ready to do that? The world is looking for answers right now. You watch the news, a whole bunch of bad stuff going on. And I believe in the last days, people are going to be curious about eternity and curious about the end times and all that stuff that's happening. When people come to you, do you have an answer for them? Jesus had an answer for these guys. Do you have an answer for someone who comes to you that would allow them to have the same faith that you do? Jesus didn't argue with them. Jesus didn't put them down. Jesus basically asked them a question because he wanted them to respond in a certain way. When we talk to people, we can ask them questions that allow them to see what Christ has done in us, and then they provoke another question from them. Our conversation, the Bible says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. In other words, as you talk to someone, you don't talk like you're, you know, all your Christian language. I heard a, a Michael Jr., how many know Michael Jr., comedian? He says, you ever meet someone who is oversaved? He says, you just want to carry on a conversation with the person and you say, hey, I lost the keys in my car. Have you seen my keys? You need the keys of the kingdom. He said, I'm just looking for my car. We don't want to be that guy, but we want to be able to talk to someone one-on-one -on -one about what God's done for us. Because as time draws short, whether it's chronologically short for us or the rapture is going to happen soon. We need to be sure that we're talking to people about Jesus and telling them simply what God's done for us. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? And no matter how many times you read the Bible, you're always hoping for a different outcome. You know what's going to happen to Jesus. You know what's going to happen during his crucifixion, but you always wish it could be different. We know what's going to happen. Jesus' love for the people was reciprocated by hate. And you're going to find some people that don't like you very much. And the more you're like Jesus, the less they're going to like you. Our job is to still show them the love of Christ. And the more they come against us, and the more we respond in love for them, their hearts can change. Jesus didn't respond when they were beating him and asking him stupid questions. He just, the Bible says he was silent. When he's on the cross, he said, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing. We're going to face people all of our lives that do things to us and act in a certain way to us that we don't like or appreciate. But we're to forgive them.
and move on. In that way, people truly see Jesus in our life. Now I know our natural inclination is to do just the opposite. But that is exactly why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never really, you really don't know what we're talking about. You've never really experienced knowing Jesus as your Savior. You've never committed your life to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says we are all sinners. All of us. Every person that's ever lived except Jesus has sinned. And the Bible says that God is a holy God and no sin can be in His presence. So therefore, the wages of those sins, the payment for the sins we commit is death. And what that is, that's separation from God. We want to be separate from God here. God says, you'll be separate from me in eternity. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. The sins that we commit have to be paid for. We can't do it. But Jesus says, I'll do it for you. I will take all of your sins upon me. I will suffer the wrath that you all should have suffered. And all I'm asking you to do is believe that I gave my life for you. You don't have to work to earn it. You don't have to be good enough. In fact, you can't be good enough. The only thing God requires us is to believe it, not just in our head, but we believe it in our heart, which causes the change in our life that makes us into who we are today. If you're here and you've never experienced that, you don't know what it's like to be, as the Bible calls, born again. That's why you're here. There's no coincidences in God's kingdom. Coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. So if you're here and you've never really experienced that and you're curious about that, you want to know what that feels like, what that means. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation for you. Don't wait till next week, next month. Today's the day. If that's you and you've never experienced it but you really want to know what we're talking about, I want you to raise your hand. We're going to pray. I'm going to introduce you to the Jesus that we all know. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been exhibiting the fruit like you, like you want to. Maybe your prayer life is get caught up in the busyness of the day. That you don't find any time to read or to pray. And you've noticed a change in you. That you're maybe a little grumpier than normal. Or you don't respond well. And you know it's because of your lack of prayer life. The Bible says that times, hey, today's the day to come back to that. Make a new commitment to read and pray every day. Just like you need food every day, you need God's word every day. And without food, you get weak physically. Without God's word, you get weak spiritually. So today's the day you can make that commitment to jump back into God's word starting tomorrow morning. And that'll be the beginning 
of your spiritual nourishment. Maybe you're looking for someone to really share your testimony with. We all have friends and family that need Jesus. Pray that God opens that door for you. And then pray that God gives you the words to say. Prepare the hearts of the people you're talking to. So that when you talk to them, they're open to receive that truth. Father, we just humble ourselves before you this morning. And we thank you for first saving us. You reached down and you had our sins forgiven. We came to the point where we understood the gospel and we believed and we are eternally grateful for that. Knowing what we know now, we would never go back. So we do enter your courts with thanksgiving and praise. And Father, we pray for the needs mentioned earlier. I pray for those who are struggling in their prayer life. I pray that you would open a door for them. I pray that you would allow them the opportunity and the time and the, and the desire to spend time with you. I pray for those we are praying for that you would open their hearts to the truth. Your word tells us that you're long-suffering, not wanting any to perish. But you want all to come to repentance. You want everyone to be saved. And your word says, ask anything according to my name, and it will be done for you. So, Father, we are praying that you would save those folks we're praying for right now. That you would draw them by your spirit. That you would work in their life. That you would do what you know is necessary for them to become believers. And we thank you that you're going to do that. And we pray for us as a church that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. That we are able to exhibit that fruit not only in here but when we're out. And then when people see us they will want to know why we are the way we are. And I pray that you would open that door for us to be able to share that with them. And I pray that your Holy Spirit is free in this church to move and minister as you will. That God we come in it's not just a meeting. It's a place where the Spirit of God is in the midst of us and he is working in every life and father we want to be free and sensitive to what you want to accomplish in our services so father i commit each one of us to each of those ends and father we will thank you and praise you and honor you for answered prayer because we have a god in whom we can trust you're faithful to us and Lord, I commit ourselves to serving you the best we can in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. See you Wednesday night. We're continuing our study on the Spirit of God.